Acts chapter 13, starting with verse 6. Okay, the last time we saw Herod Agrippa as a great example of what not to put your trust in. And we contrasted that with, of course, Jesus Christ. Today we're going to see the Apostle Paul's conflict with Bar-Jesus, also known as Elimus, starting with verse 6. Now when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeking the sun for a time, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, been astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now when Paul and his party set sail, set sail from Paphos, they come to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. So what you see here is really the eternal struggle between good and evil, exemplified in a confrontation between Paul and Elimus. I'm just going to start with some of the terminology, some of what the names mean, some of the geography, and then we'll move to the body of the story. Bar-Jesus. In the Greek, it's bar Jesus. In the Hebrew, it's bar Yeshua. Or literally, in the English, it's translated to son of salvation. His name was a lie. We saw last Sunday that the Antichrist we talked about, we talked about Herod as counterfeits. And here, we have another counterfeit, all, or, or alternative to God and his ways. And the world is full of them. Some counterfeits, well... Pantheism. I'd like to believe that God is in everything. Pantheism. Deism. I'd like to believe that, or it seems to me that God kind of made everything and then he kind of went away on a long vacation and he's not intimately involved with us. I'm a deist. Or dualism, pluralism, all the isms. Sometimes we make up our own gods. Well, we don't if we're believers, but people make up their own gods. Well, I'd like to believe that God is this. I'd like to believe that there's no hell. I'd like to believe God is always warm and fuzzy to me, so I'm going to make up a God in my image. But what you find is that God doesn't exist. What's the sense in making up your own God if he doesn't exist? This counterfeit Jesus kept Sergius Paulus and Cyprus proper in bondage to Satan's lies and control. Bar-Jesus was also known as Elimus, as the text tells us. In the Greek, it was Illumas Hamagas. He was a sorcerer or someone who practiced the magic arts. Sorcerers have limited supernatural powers that they receive from Satan. Do you remember in Exodus 7 when Moses went up against Pharaoh and Pharaoh had his magicians, you know, these types of people, even back then? And what they did was they both threw their rods down and their rods became serpents. So there was two serpents. And then Moses threw his staff down, and it also became a serpent, 
and it swallowed up Pharaoh's magician's serpents. So you see, even back then, there was a, a counterfeiting of God uh, through evil men. The ironic thing is even today, those who completely scoff at the demonic realm, if you talk about demons and angels to some people, they think you're crazy. You're a fanatic. That's bizarre, right? But it was no different back in the day of Jesus. Remember the Sadducees. These were religious leaders who did not believe in angels and spirits in the afterlife. So my question is, what did they think was going to happen when they died? If you worship God, what do you think is going to happen? But the irony is those people today who scoff at the demonic realm, ironically, are those who are controlled by the demonic realm. They don't have to see it because Satan has already got them into his, his captivating lies. And we're going to read a scripture that talks about their minds or their eyes being blinded to the truth. Bar Jesus, he was also a false prophet. That's somebody who speaks in contradiction to or misrepresents God's word by definition. If you're taking notes, that covered in all the way back in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 18, verses 19 through 22. And again, the Antichrist will have a false prophet on his staff. He's going to need him. It's speculated that this will be some type of ecumenical leader, some very important, could be an evangelical leader, could be a pope. It could be some high-ranking uh, religious leader that's going to get all the religious people on board to worship this beast because you've got to get the religious people on board. And then it seals the deal. So that's what's going to happen. Uh, we see that in the book of Revelation. Chuck Smith was saying that a few presidents were consulting with Gene Dixon, Talk about false prophets. And if those of you who don't know who that is, if you're going through the supermarket and you look at the National Enquirer that's on the shelves, you would see the Gene Dixon prophecies, right? I don't know if she still does that. But it's just interesting to look at while you're going to get your food checked out, right? But this was a woman who probably at best had a 20 or 30% success rate on her prophecies. Well, according to the Old Testament, she's about 80% off. In the Old Testament, according to Deuteronomy 18, you had to have a 100% success rate to be a prophet of God. You couldn't make one false prophecy out of a thousand. You would be cast out as a false prophet. In the Old Testament, she would have been stoned for misrepresenting God. That's how serious God looks at this stuff. Let's go to the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul was a high Roman official, probably under the, um, the authority of Rome, Sergius Paulus was like the governor of the island of Cyprus. It says he was intelligent. If he was so intelligent, why did he have a false prophet on his staff, we wonder? Well, certainly his intelligence came from uh, worldly intelligence. But there's many intelligent people today who are just not, they're not going to make it. They're, gonna, they're going to hell. No matter how smart they are, God's not impressed by intelligence. I was reading an article that talked about how I don't know if you've seen this recently. They figured out how to clone the monkey embryos. And the company that's done that says this is a success. Now we're going to move from monkey embryos to humans. You know, it's just the way man is. He's, he's never satiated with what he can do to play God. So the boast is to clone humans next. What I also find interesting is Pastor Anthony emailed me an article from The Telegraph that said, how, how many of you are familiar with Ian Vilmot? Anybody? No. How many of you are familiar with Dolly the Sheep? Okay, a lot more. <laughs> his, his creation is more, uh, ironically, uh, popular than he is. But Ian Vilmot uh, cloned the, the sheep embryo, and they nicknamed her Dolly. 
and she grew up, etc. But what happened was she was defective, and she was so sickly that they had to euthanize her. See, this, was happen- this is what happens when you play God. That's not very reported. It's reported that a sheep was cloned, but she was in such bad shape, this sheep, that they had to put her to sleep. Again, that's not reported. It was a failed experiment. But Ian Vilmot has said he's totally abandoned um, embryonic cloning. So the funny thing is the father of that, that uh, procedure, so to speak, has abandoned it. He said it's, it's bad, it doesn't work, it's failed. If we're going to do anything, we should go to parent or adult stem cells. And we've talked about that before. But here, of course, we see Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man, does become converted. He does see the light. Now, geography. We're going to follow Paul's first missionary journey here. And you can see that he goes from Antioch to Seleucia. It's a a seaport. And again, just to get your bearings, this is modern-day Turkey, this area up here. This is modern-day Lebanon, and this over here is modern-day Syria. Okay, so just so you know what we're looking at. This is the, the Mediterranean, and my people in Italy come over here by the boot. <laughs> so, back to the map. So he goes from Antioch to Seleucia. They set sail. They go to Salamis, which is on the east side of the island of Cyprus. They go across a 100-mile journey to Paphos, which is also the capital Then they head north to what's known as modern-day Turkey, to Perga, which is the capital of Pamphylia. And Pamphylia basically is in the belly of of, uh, southern Turkey. So if you follow the arrows, you can see uh, Paul's first missionary journey, just to kind of get that embedded into your head. Cyprus today is the third largest island in the Mediterranean, and it's also a major tourist attraction. It was a former, just again, just to get you a little familiarity, a little history, Cyprus was a former British colony, but now it's an independent nation. And it's been part of the European Union since 2004. It's comprised of mostly Greek Orthodox Cypriots, which is somebody from Cyprus is called a Cypriot in the majority, and Turkish Muslim Cypriots in the minority. Now, Paphos then, again, was the capital of Cyprus. And we talked about Perga and the whole missionary journey. Going to verse 6, going back to Bar-Jesus. There's a lot that's spoken about this man, a lot of discussion about who Bar-Jesus was. Bar-Jesus was a Jewish sorcerer. Now, to put Jewish and sorcerer together should be an oxymoron. Because by, by nature of the definition, you can't be Jewish and a sorcerer. And let me explain. By strict definition, according to Leviticus 19, you are not a child of God if you practice this type of behavior, especially not for a Jew. In the Bible, there's things known as soothsaying, sorcery, necromancy, divination, and augury. And basically what these are are ways to try to get spiritual insight by circumventing God. Now, if you have insight, or you, somebody comes to you and says, I have insight to the spiritual realm. I, I can make prophecies. There's only three things that could happen. One, that person is a prophet of God. And again, their prophecies will have to come true 100 out of 100, 1,000 out of 1,000, 10,000 out of 10,000 times. You're either that or you're a fraud. And we see some of these people on TV 
they have their little schemes with their their scouts that go out to the lobby and talk to the people, get as much information as possible, report back to the so-called um, you know clairvoyant, and they do these shows. Very very crafty people, but they're frauds. Or third, which is worse, you do have some insight and you do get some of those prophecies right, but your source doesn't come from God; it comes from Satan. So that you only have three choices: you're from God, you're a fraud, or it's demonic. Okay, so that's pretty serious stuff. How many of you, you have heard of the Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism? Okay, a lot of the, uh, the stars, the celebrities practice this. Madonna is a big proponent of it. These people are in deception because they're practicing exactly what God told them not to when Judaism was, was formed, so to speak. They actually now have these, um, you, can, you can go online and get these red bracelets. They're called Kabbalah bracelets, and they have these little amulets or charms hanging from them, and it's supposed to ward off evil. Well, again, they don't have to experience Satan in his ugly form because Satan already has them under his control. So Satan looks down at these people, and and they're a joke to him. They're a joke to him. Verse 8. But we see that Elimus wanted to keep the island of Cyprus in darkness. And we have a tendency to... When somebody is, is controlled by a demonic force or they're just totally um, uh, railing against your faith or, or just attacking God or whatever they're doing, but we have to realize that there's a force that's controlling them. We tend to get angry at the person, but if we try to fight with that person through physical means, we're not going to get anywhere because I'm going to read in the scripture that talks about these people are controlled by other forces that are not seen to us. In Daniel chapter 10, I'm not going to turn to it, but this is pretty wild. There were demonic entities of the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. There's an angel that comes to Daniel. Some people think it's, it's Jesus, but I don't think it's Jesus because he has a hard time fighting with some of these demons, and Jesus wouldn't have a hard time fighting with them. So I reject that. Some think that it's a, a Christophany or a pre-incarnate Christ appearing, and I don't agree with that. But anyway, he tells... Um, Daniel, I was having a hard time. I was withstood by the prince of Persia. And then Michael, the archangel, came and fought and helped me to release me so that I could go give you the message that God had sent me and dispatched me to give to you. So it's pretty wild, um, you know, spiritual things going on that we don't see. I tend to believe that there's certainly a prince of New Jersey. There's a prince of the United States. There was a prince of North America. And there's different demonic entities that, that have geographical strongholds throughout the world. Again, that's scriptural. In New Jersey, uh, there's a lot of things that this state supports and stands for. Uh, me being in government, I've seen some things and uh, know about some things that uh, definitely there's demonic entities that are very strong in the state of New Jersey. So you need to pray, especially for your elected officials. And that's why on the bulletin, we give you a list of all our elected officials. You've you got to pray for those people because a lot of them are in strongholds of the demonic realm. So if they pull me from this, doing this next week, uh, you know, you'll know why. <laughs> it's probably not going to be very popular. And, you know, you, you see a lot of the principalities and municipalities too, especially if you ever try to get a permit for, to build a shed. You'll see a lot of strongholds there. But 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6, I want to digress a little bit to spiritual warfare. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-6, Paul says, again, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. 
For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So we, we, don't, we walk in the flesh. We walk in a physical body. You see me. I have a physical body. Um, if I fell, I would be hurting, and I probably wouldn't be able to finish speaking to you. But my body actually carries my spirit. We've, we've discussed this. But when we fight, if we fight with the flesh, we're, we're missing. We're not going to get anywhere. The, the flesh only gets us so far. When we fight, we need to war in a spiritual sense, through prayer, through the word of God, uh, through strengthening yourself with other brothers and sisters in the Lord. That's how we war. We warfare. Another scripture that comes to mind is Ephesians 6. Turn to Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. Paul says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Now, Again, what are we fighting with? What weapons are we using? When I go out on patrol, I have a, a duty belt, I have a, a sidearm, I have handcuffs, I have pepper spray, a radio, a ballistic vest, and I fight the battle that I need to fight with the weapons that I've been given. Now, if I'm going to take those weapons <laughs> and try to fight spiritual battle, I'm not going to get anywhere because none of my weapons that I have on my belt and that I carry are going to do anything for me. I need to fight a spiritual battle. And that's what Paul is saying here. To change the world, to change people, it's not going to be through physical means. And then he goes on to say, now, look at the armor that you're supposed to wear when you fight a, a spiritual battle. 14. He says, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. That's a huge one. You know, the old, you know, Paul is speaking about how the Romans really dressed themselves to battle. They would have a shield. They would have a, a medium sword. They would have a, a helmet. They would have all these things to protect themselves and get ready for battle. But Paul is saying, don't put it on of bronze or of iron, Put the, the shield of faith so when those fiery darts come towards you, when the lies of the enemy of Satan come towards you, the only thing that's going to keep those arrows from piercing into your heart is that shield of faith. The stronger your faith is, the more you're going to be able to resist those fiery darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation covers what? Your mind. Your mind. That's what covers your mind and protects your mind. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. There's your offensive wep weapon. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You know, we fight with prayer. We fight with the Word of God. That's how we advance in our battles. So it's pretty interesting stuff. I mean, if you could get a glimpse to uh, what was going on in the world, um, and if God for a moment could let you look around and see, who knows? Who knows what would be flying through this room? Some of you, maybe you're not believers. Some of you may have... Um, 
demonic entities harassing you. Some of you may have uh, demonic entities whispering to you about your past and holding you down and not allowing you to move forward for God because you think very lowly of yourself. Some of you may be having demonic entities that are using you to cause problems and, and division. So, again, if we, if we were to open this up or especially go into any major city and God would show us the, the realm, the spiritual realm, it would probably be very fascinating, wouldn't it? Verse 9. We see here, this is the first time uh, the Apostle Paul is called Paul from Saul. You see the name flip now. Because in the, in the other uh, chapters, I would say Saul, Saul, and say, but I'm speaking about the Apostle Paul. So he's called Saul, and now he's called Paul, and from now on, that's his name. Now, there could be a few reasons for this, and some speculate. Some believe his Roman name was probably Saul Paulus, as he was a Roman citizen. We know that from the scripture, he was a Roman citizen. Uh, some believe that Paul is actually the Hebrew equivalent, the Hebrew Saul equivalent translates over to Paul in the Roman name. The speculation is now that he's going into the Roman world, he has to be all things to all men. Remember Paul says that, I will become all things to all men that I may win some to Christ. So he was, to the Jew, he was a Jew, he was a Pharisee, he was brought up, learned under Gamaliel, great Jewish teacher. To When he went to the Romans, he, he used his Roman citizenship, I am a Roman too. I'm speaking your language, so to speak. Also, there's a play on names here. The names back in the scripture had very important meanings. We sometimes name our kids trendy names, but back in those days, names had meaning. Saul was probably named after the mighty King Saul. When we read into the Old Testament, we see that uh, King Saul started out pretty good, and then he did very badly at the end, and his end was tragic. But King Saul, the Bible says, was not only handsome, but he was a, he was a, a tall man, and uh, he was very impressive to look at. No doubt if you were looking for a king, you, you would look at King Saul and say, well, there's our king. Hail King Saul, because he just had that physical, impressive appearance. So his name goes from Saul to Paul. Now, Paul means little. I believe there's a humility factor there, because Paul had uh, great mysteries revealed to him. He wrote half the New Testament. He uh, was, was really a super apostle in a sense. And I'm sure some of that affected his ego. So they were things that the Lord used to keep him humble. Uh, again, his name Paul means little. And you see a lot of name changing in the Bible when people are changed by God. Remember, Yaakov became Israel. Abram became Abraham. Sarai became Sarah and so forth. So you see a lot of times when God deals with people, not only does he change their heart, but he changed their names. I think the question there is, are we open to change? I mean, you know, I'm 40 years old. Uh, sometimes I get set in my ways. And I would say uh, probably a lot of us, you know, help me out here. I'm sure a lot of you would agree. You get set in your ways after a time. And you don't want to change, but we have to change. Because God is always trying to move us in a direction. And the, the moment we dig our heels in is the moment we don't grow. Our whole life that we're here, God tries to change us. He tries to do something in our heart. He tries to move us towards a certain goal. So are we open to change? Verse 10. Let me read this again. And think about somebody saying this to you. Uh, Paul says, Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, <laughs> you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? This is righteous indignation or calling out sin. 
It's certainly not um, often done in the modern church because it's offensive. Because we in New Jersey, New Jerseyans are very proud people, aren't we? We kind of have like a little edge to us as New Jerseyans. Are you talking to me? Do you know who I am? You know, that kind of attitude, right? So it doesn't really fly that well here, and it's a shame. But we live in a society of coddling, coddling, or coddling sin, excuse me. And that's the society we live in. We don't want to spank our kids. I mean, there's a, a really neat article that, that I have here. It came from the Baptist Press. It was posted on November 6th. It actually talked about uh, Dr. Spock, not to be confused with Mr. Spock from Star Trek. But in the 50s and, and 60s, he was the big guru of how to raise your child, child development, and he wrote some books. And he said that, he said, don't discipline your children. Allow them to express themselves. Discipline, he told us, would warp a child's fragile ego. Millions followed this guru of child development, and he remained unchallenged among child-rearing professionals. However, before his death, Dr. Spock made an amazing discovery. He was wrong. In fact, he said, quote, we have reared a generation of brats. Parents, <laughs> it's true, some of us are those brats. <laughs> Parents aren't firm enough with their children for fear of losing their love or incurring their resentment. This is a cruel deprivation that we professionals have imposed on mothers and fathers. Of course, we did it with the best of intentions. We didn't realize it until it was too late how our know-it-all attitude was undermining the self-assurance of parents, end quote. It's pretty fascinating. But we do. We want to coddle our children. We make excuses. How many of us has made, don't raise your hand, please, but how many of us, <laughs> this is one that I don't want you to do, how many of us have made excuses for our relatives who have gotten arrested? All right. I'm sure a lot of us, oh, he's just whatever, or he just has a, an addiction problem, or uh, he just, it, it was the cop's fault, or it was the teacher's fault. It was always somebody else's fault, but the person who's being coddled. Come on, you're all shaking your head. You know I'm, tr I'm telling the truth here. We see it all the time with police and teachers. You know, teachers have a very hard job, because often they'll go to the parents about a kid that, their kid that's bullying somebody, and right away the parents get an attitude with the teacher. Now, when I was growing up, that didn't happen. My mom would automatically take the teacher or the cop's view over mine. And I know a lot of you are shaking your heads. At least with police, when we do that, um, we, could we have the power to arrest people. So we kinda, you know, that kind of helps us out a little bit. But I remember one of my sergeants, um, he actually saw a juvenile, you know, 17-year-old kid, pick up a rock and throw it through a plate glass window of a strip mall. And he arrested the kid, brought him to headquarters, and he called the parents. Well, the parents came in front of their kids, started arguing with the cop. He said, ma'am, I saw your kid do it. And she's yelling at the cop like it was his fault. Well, do you know, not even a year later, he was caught burg uh, burglarizing his neighbor's home. And we caught him with the proceeds of those, that burglary. But you know what? The parents helped foster this attitude of coddling sin, coddling sin. You see it all the time, and it's really sad. But Paul here, I tell you what, Paul wouldn't do very well in New Jersey. Because he had no problem with calling out sin, and he was very direct. Right? Verse 11. Bar Jesus sees the reality of his spiritual blindness by way of physical blindness. Now, Bar Jesus was in spiritual darkness, and here, this is pretty neat, Paul gives Bar Jesus a physical object lesson on his spiritual condition. I want to read another scripture here 2 Corinthians 4 3 through 6.
Paul says, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. This is great for this portion of scripture. We see um, the, the big contrast between light and darkness. And we're going to go into that. Without Jesus, many are in darkness and don't realize it. But here, Bar Jesus has a unique opportunity to see this darkness and this blindness from both sides. He's got this great opportunity. We're going to come back to that. Now, you may see that kind of seems um, harsh what Paul did. You know, he, he just boom, and, and now you're blind for a while. Well, let's look at this. Number one, this was a lesson to Bar Jesus to see that it's very serious to oppose what God is doing. This is a time for re- uh, reflection. And I think it's good to have a time of reflection. I think he had that opportunity, obviously. Uh, it also says that the blindness was only for a time. I believe it gave him opportunity for repentance. Bar Jesus went from famous and successful to neither in a moment's time. So he had the opportunity for reflection and repentance. Now, let's go through this. The difference between being born blind and being made blind later in, later in life is important. Number one, the first is the world's condition. The world, we're all born into sin, okay, and we're all born blind spiritually. And the world has always been in darkness, so they don't really know what light is until, of course, they're born again. Now, let me give you an example. If you're born blind, okay, and you live your whole life to your 20s and 30s and you're, you're blind, when somebody explains the beauty of a sunrise or the beauty of the trees or any of the things that we can see, they can't relate. No matter how much you explain to them, to them it's very difficult. Because they were born blind, right? The second condition is Bar Jesus' condition, physically and spiritually. So Bar Jesus was born or was born with sight, and now he got to see what it was like to be blind. Now he can't see. So he can have that contrast. Also, spiritually, he was in spiritual darkness and is an opportunity for him to see the light. So you kind of see like a a reverse, an inverse relationship happening. Spiritually, we as believers are in reverse. We're born in darkness and we receive sight. And when we see sight, when we're born again and we see things for what they are, our eyes are opened. And then we look back and say, how did I ever get along in my life without Jesus, without spiritual sight, right? We wonder that. I wonder that. This is kind of enigmatic and it really should, should sink in. And sometimes we get frustrated, impatient, if we've been believers for a while, with somebody who's just not getting it. But if we bring ourselves back to where we were, okay, we could see that we didn't get it that, that easily either. And no matter how much you, you, know, you want to go like this and you want to explain it to them and they're not getting it, you get frustrated. But now we have to go back to the spiritual weapons. We can't fight with physical weapons. We have to fight with spiritual weapons. So if we're really that concerned about our relative, our loved one, a coworker, a neighbor, the question is, are they on our, our prayers every day? And if not, then we're maybe not really that serious about it because we have to fight with those spiritual weapons. Verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had, been, what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Well, what was he astonished at? Yeah, he saw what was done. He saw what happened to Bar Jesus. But what does the Bible say he was astonished at? The teaching, the word of God. Too many Christians today are going after signs and wonders. And they're going after the new light and airy gospel with half the calories. It's not very satisfying, is it? 
Many come up with bizarre doctrines and blame it on the Holy Spirit. The word of God, exposition on the word, is boring or trite to them, and they're being led by their emotions, but not Sergius Paulus. I want to read that same article. Bear with me. It's only about three minutes long here, but uh, this is a really good article. It's actually the same thing, but it's the second half of it. It says, something just as momentous as the thing about Dr. Spock, in my opinion, has just happened in the evangelical community. For most of a generation, evangelicals have been romanced by the seeker-sensitive movement spawned by Willow Creek Community Church in Chicago. The guru of this this movement is Bill Hybels. He and others have been telling us for decades to throw out everything we have previously thought and been taught about church growth and replace it with a new paradigm, a new way to do ministry. Perhaps inadvertently with this new wave of ministry came a de-emphasis on taking personal responsibility for Bible study combined with an emphasis on felt needs-based programs and slick marketing. The size of the crowd rather than the depth of the heart determines success. If the crowd was large, then surely God was blessing the ministry. Churches were built by demographic studies, professional strategists, marketing research, meeting felt needs and sermons consistent with these techniques. We were told that preaching was out, relevance was in. Doctrine didn't nearly matter as much as innovation. If it wasn't cutting edge and consumer friendly, it was doomed. The mention of sin, salvation, and sanctification were taboo and replaced by Starbucks, strategy, and sensitivity. Thousands of pastors hung on every word that emanated from the lips of church growth experts. Satellite seminars were packed with hungry church leaders learning the latest way to do church. The promise was clear. Thousands of people and millions of dollars couldn't be wrong. Forget what people need. Give them what they want. How can you argue with that, that with the numbers? If you dared to challenge the experts, you were immediately labeled as a traditionalist, a throwback to the 50s, a stubborn dinosaur unwilling to change with the times. All that changed recently. This is where it gets good. Willow Creek has released the results of a multi-year study on the effectiveness of their programs and philosophy of ministry. The study's findings are in a new book titled Reveal, Where Are You? Co-authored by Callie Parkinson and Greg Hawkins, executive pastor of Willow Creek Community Church. Hybels finds himself, actually Hybels himself called the findings groundbreaking, earth-shaking, and mind-blowing. And no wonder, it seems that the experts were wrong. The report reveals most of what they had been doing for many years and what they had taught millions of others to do is not producing solid disciples of Jesus Christ. Numbers, yes, but not disciples. It gets worse. Heibel himself laments, quote, Some of the stuff that we put millions of dollars into thinking would really help our people grow and develop spiritually, when the data actually came back, it wasn't helping people that much. Other things we didn't put that much money into and didn't put much staff against is stuff our people are crying out for. If you simply want a crowd, the seeker-sensitive model produces results. If you want solid, sincere, mature followers of Christ, it's a bust. In a shocking convention, Heibel states, quote again, We made a mistake. What we should have done when people cross the line of faith and become Christians, we should have started telling people and teaching people that they have to take responsibility to become self-feeders. We should have gotten people, taught people, how to read their Bible between services, how to do the spiritual practices much more aggressively on their own. Incredibly, the church of the guru of church growth now tells us that people need to be reading their Bibles and taking responsibility for their spiritual growth. Just as Spock's mistake was no minor error, so the error of the seeker-sensitive movement is monumental in its scope. 
The foundation of thousands of American churches is now discovered to be mere sand. The one individual who has had perhaps the greatest influence on the American church in our generation has now admitted his philosophy of ministry in large part was a mistake. The extent of this error defies measurement. See, this is why I'm good for this job, because I'm boring. It's true. Ask my wife. I am a boring guy. To me, it's very simple. I can take the word of God, open it up, explain it to you. I could do that for 50 years and just do the same thing and not say, I'd like a change, I want to do something different. I'm boring. So I'm the perfect person for this position. And honestly, that's what we have to do. We have to just stick with what God has done for thousands of years. Not try to change it, not try to jazz it up, not try to sweeten it up. It doesn't work. It's the word of God. And you going home knowing the word of God, you'll make a difference in your families, in your communities, in your marriage, with your children, etc. It'll just keep going. You know, you'll be just like a dynamo. But it's the word of God. That's what we have to get back to. Verse 13. <laughs> now, I'm not picking on Hybels. I, I got to say, I got to give the guy credit to actually write this and to publicize it, I made a mistake. This was wrong. You know, we've been doing this for all these years. We need to get back to the Word of God. Praise, praise God for Bill Hybels that he's noticed this. And hopefully he'll change his ministry uh, based on that. So, you know, we're not about tearing people apart. It's always good to see your mistakes and learn and change from those mistakes. 13. Okay, so what happens here is now John Mark departs from them and he returns to Jerusalem. <laughs> They're just getting started. John Mark up and leaves. <laughs> and we've talked about that. We talked about the rift it caused, with, caused between Saul and Barnabas. Um, I'm sorry, yeah, Saul and Barnabas causing John Mark to later go with Barnabas and Paul to take Silas. But in the end, we see there's good fruit. There's a reconciling here. The question is, why did John Mark leave? And there's some speculation. Some thought that maybe he was homesick. Some thought that maybe he had a problem with Paul's leadership. Maybe he expected cousin Barnabas to lead. Um, and three, it could have been just plain spiritual opposition. Notwithstanding, there was a failure in ministry. And that brings me to failure in ministry. If you've been a leader for a while in anything, and you say you never messed up, you're either proud or you're lying to yourself. It happens to everyone. It's happened to me ever since I started ministry. You make mistakes, but the question is, how do we handle it when we make the mistake? No, I didn't, not me, must be somebody else, somebody else's fault, or do you take ownership, repent, and move forward? That's the best model for messes, messing up, especially in ministry, because God allows forgiveness. You could see that John Mark messed up big time here. He caused a lot of division and problems between great men of God, but he was redeemed later on, and God used him to write the second gospel. So pretty amazing. You know, God can do that. So we need to take ownership, repent, and move forward. Moving beyond failures to faithfulness can be very fruitful, but to quote Jesus, he says, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. Only after dying can it produce much fruit. And what he's saying is something that's very hard for most of us, especially goes against our flesh. It doesn't matter who you are and where you are in ministry, but dying to ourself. That kernel of wheat can produce a lot of fruit, but as long as it's sitting there on the end of that, that leaf or branch, it's not doing anything. It actually has to fall off and die and be buried, and then it can produce great fruit and a great crop. And that's what we have to learn. 
need to learn to die to ourselves. Only after dying to ourselves, dying to our flesh, dying to our self-centeredness is the only way that God is going to use us to build fruit in our lives. And lastly, before we close, we see here a constant tug, tug of war into the spiritual domain, often manifesting itself in the temporal. We saw it in Bar-Jesus, this, this tug of war between him not wanting the whole island of Cyprus to go Christian and, the, and, the, and the, the fight between him and Paul. And again, there was a spiritual fight behind that. Even in John Mark, Satan somehow used something to cause John to back, back away and cause a rift between Paul and Barnabas. Something there, spiritual. But God also bore fruit later on. And you see this tug of war. And even in our lives, we start off as children of darkness. The Bible's clear. I've quoted those scriptures before. And that's all we know. And then we become born again and regenerated into new life. And then everything is easy and happy and we have no problems till the day the Lord comes back, right? Wrong. There's just a, a constant war between good and evil. Uh, it sounds so, so trite and so old-fashioned, but it's true. And in a sense, it's a war of attrition. God is trying to bring as many people into the kingdom as possible, but he won't trample over our, our, our free will. Satan is doing the best he can to pull those who come to Christ back, especially in the beginning stages. He tries to pull them back into darkness, and he tries to keep those who are in darkness from receiving the light, as we saw on the island of Cyprus. Evil does not want to let go easily. It will fight because it's, it, it's dead. The demons are going to be judged, and they want to take as many people down with them as possible. And unfortunately to you, and even to you mature believers, this kind of warfare manifests itself to those closest to you, your family, your friends, your co-workers. The demonic realm is worse than any terrorist. When you hear all these stories about what the terrorists do, and um, they just don't play by the rules. Just when you think it can't get any more abject, it does. There's reports about um, terrorists who want to keep the, I'm looking for any kids here, want to keep the, uh, the villages in fear of them. So what they do is they, uh, they have a, a, t a dinner type of setting and they'll invite some of the parents from the village and as they're eating, they tell them, this is your child, or they show them the head or something like that. These people are sick. They are demonic. And what they do is they try to keep these people in fear and bondage because they don't want to lose the control. They're demonic. And, and, and the uh, demonic realm is, is the same way. They'll go after your family. They'll go after your children. They'll go after anything that they can do to keep you to go back to the old way in your old life, to give you to just throw your hands up and give up and say, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. And we all feel that pressure at times. So, again, if you could see what was going on in the spiritual realm, I've got to tell you, it would be more fantastic than any Lord of the Rings movies. I love those movies. And they're just so the imagery and the special effects. But if we could just get a glimpse of the spiritual realm, we would probably, probably wouldn't be able to handle it. It would probably just totally blow us apart. And we fight a lot of battles in life. Think about all the battles you fight. You know, sometimes it's with your relatives. <laughs> Thanksgiving's coming up, Christmas, and oh, the relatives are coming, and maybe some of them you don't get along with, or fight battles at work, fight battles here, fight battles there. But my prayer is that we realize how important it is to be in the proper battle. Let's pray.